Rolling. Welcome to Friends You With. We are not those friends. So I just wanted to say very first off, we weren't going to talk about this today, but I just want to drop it real quick. Um, I think I've mentioned previously on the podcast that I am a Ukrainian-American. Who tells? I speak Ukrainian. I have a great love for the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian nation. Um, but um, so there's a thing for Northeastern Ukrainians called Yuki Week. It is about a week or two uh, every year in late August, last two weeks of August, I believe, uh, or the last week of August. I haven't been there in about 15 years. Wherever you, a bunch of Ukrainians from the Northeast go down to the Jersey Shore, they go down to Wildwood, New Jersey, and they hang out together. Um, and this year I found out from a friend of mine that, uh, a bunch of Ukrainians paid for a plane to fly over the beach with a banner reading Ukrainian Americans for Trump mm. they, with a Ukrainian flag and an American flag. Uh, and that was devastating to me. Um, not because it's a surprise Ukrainians, Probably a majority of them are conservative, as I've, I, I actually, now I recall, I have talked about this on the podcast before. They're similar to other diaspora communities that have left uh, nominally liberal states for various reasons. Ukrainians from communism, Russians from the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, Cubans from Castro, all this. And... Um, but the good news is I found out that a bunch of my other Ukrainian-American friends, some people who I personally know, got together and paid for two planes, one of which uh, flew over the beach and said, Ukrainians for Biden and decency. I thought decency was a nice touch. I like that. I like that. And another plane that said Putin Trump 2020. Um, Always a good one. Always attention. a good one. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. And I thought it would be an interesting story for people to know about the the great fight in the Ukrainian di- diaspora unfolding in Wildwood, New Jersey, through plain ma- marketing right now. It is a confounding, and I, you know, most of what I know about the Ukrainian-American community, I know from you yeah. and a little bit from my brother who was stationed in Ukraine in the Peace Corps. Um, in Cherkasy. That's right. That's right. But out of all the sort of populations that you discuss that are sort of Trump supporters, despite their own sort of immigrant history to the United States, Ukrainians are one of the most surprising, considering that their home country is engaged in a war with Russia at the moment. So it's very very confusing to me. It's how I try to speak to conservative Ukrainians. I mean, I think it's just a matter of racism, and I think it's just a matter of if it's not me, then who gives a shit? But I, you know, when I get a chance to speak to Ukrainian Americans about this stuff, I, you know, a riot policeman is one of the worst things you can be in Ukraine. We call them Berkut, and they are just considered to be um, violent, uncaring hands of the corrupt state. A riot policeman is, you know, about as bad as you can get for public opinion in Ukraine. But then you come to America and Ukrainian Americans who have been here for 50 years, 70 years now, and all of a sudden, you know, if you 
criticize the state, especially if a Republican is in charge, if you criticize the police, if you criticize the riot police, if you criticize violence or police brutality, you're just asking for a complete breakdown of society. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, you know, I mean, in Ukraine and Russia, and I've said this before on the podcast, you know, I don't, I don't want to diminish the minorities that live in those countries, but for the most part, everyone's white. When there's a big protest, it's white versus white. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, the white population that does not like corruption versus the white population that benefits from the corruption. Once you bring those people to America and the oppressed Amer- community. Unique American racism gets its hooks into them. It just gets its hooks into them pretty fucking quickly. It's, I think all that's true. And I have my own experiences growing up in Miami with uh, uh, friends from Cuba and friends from Central America who fled uh, communist revolutions there and came to the United States. But I think the specific thing that's so challenging with the Ukrainian community is that they, I would imagine, are all incredibly opposed to Putin. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then here you've got this guy in the White House who, on his best, you know, at his best, he just seems like a rube when it comes to dealing with Putin. Let's not even get into the idea that He's some kind of compromised Russian asset, but, you know, just looks like a rube. They and just for these don't other communities, you know, they back these, you know, Republican, conservative, strong, anti-communist presidents because they were standing, you know, Reagan wasn't going and having lunch with Daniel Ortega. You know, I had a, a, a kid I went to high school with, who was good friends, and, you know, his family fled Nicaragua after the revolution there. And, you know, he supported family support of the Contras, like, you know, they were hardcore anti-communists and they could look at Reagan and Bush and say, those are our guys. But that is not the case with Ukrainians at the moment. And it is, it is well, confounding. One of many well, confounding things. Well, but that's how, that is how it started with Ukrainians because Republicans were, uh, more anti-Russia, more anti-communism, of course, more, of course. more pro-Cold War. So that's how it started. And guys like John McCain were heroes to Ukrainians in, uh, uh, in the modern history because of their support for Ukraine. I just think they just bought into all that fake news, fake news, fake this, fake that. I also think, you know, they watch a lot of Fox News and they watch a lot of these bullshit informa- you know, misinformation sources where Fox News was saying Trump, you know, sorry, Obama doesn't do anything for Ukraine. Uh, Ob- Obama let Crimea get taken, blah, blah, blah. The pump had uh, been primed. Right. Meanwhile, Trump is giving uh, offensive weapons, artillery, not artillery, he's giving uh, anti-tank missiles to Ukraine, where Obama never gave offensive weapons to Ukraine. Um, and that's sort of how they look at it. Um, so it's a little more nuanced when you follow it day to day. Than I wouldn't call it nuanced. Oh. I would I would just call it bullshit. I would just call it just a bunch of misinformation. Because if you actually like look at it, if you actually, in in my opinion, if you have half a brain, you see that okay. So Obama did not give the Ukrainians offensive weapons, but he gave them a laundry list of things. He gave them armored cars. He gave them bulletproof vests. He gave them gas masks. 
He gave them uh, uh, bandages. He In gave his them... personal behavior, he didn't come off like a Russian spy, too. Totally. But, like, you know, he, did, he, he didn't give them guns, but he gave them literally everything that's not called a gun that you need for war. That was incredibly important to the Ukrainians, incredibly important to them. Um, you know, we talk about troops in uh, the Iraq war, American troops, there were all those stories about some of them have better bulletproof vests than other ones, and other ones don't have really good armor. Like, we, we sent so many troops to Baghdad that we didn't have enough armor for all of them. Um, and that's what Obama was doing for Ukraine. He was sending them incredibly useful things. And they, you know, there's even like a, still a page on the State Department website laying out everything Obama gave to the Ukrainians to help in their war. And it, it's, it's robust and it is impressive. And we could talk all day, let's just, you know, we can talk about other stuff. We could talk all day about why he did not give them offensive weapons. But, but, but the other thing I would just say very quickly to just put an end to it so that we don't talk about this all night is when Trump gave Ukraine um, anti tank missiles, which don't get me wrong, the Ukrainians were very happy to have. They came with two stipulations, one public and one private. The public one was that they had to be held in Western Ukraine off the front lines. And they could only be brought to the front lines if Russia actually invaded with a shitload of tanks, which in a war seems hmm, a little wishy-washy. So basically they couldn't use them offensively. No, 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 they couldn't. They couldn't. Uh, they right. Had, I mean, the, the yeah. stipulation was they couldn't use them offensively. Right. So going back to the whole concept of offensive weapons, they could right. not use them that way. They could only use them if there was an actual tank invasion that was, I don't know, some stupid stipulation. Right. Anyway, I, th I think that's actually changed recently. I think they backtracked on that in the past six months. But I think one of the reasons they backtracked on it, and one of the interesting things is, and this was never publicly disclosed, but there were a bunch of reports saying that, um, Trump gave Ukrainians the anti-tank missiles because he got Poroshenko, the previous president, to agree that he would no longer, that he would close any investigations into Paul Manafort. Interesting, interesting. And you could call that bullshit. You could call that unverified. But after what we have verified about how Trump has been treating Ukraine and his uh, administration, I think it sounds pretty fucking legit to me. Well, I mean, I guess two final thoughts for me. One is that it wouldn't surprise me if Trump does something dangerous to overcompensate for his incompetence. You know, sure. so he, he makes the area, makes the battlefield more dangerous by, you know, giving weapons to Ukraine that could only make the situation worse. Um, and that two, I would guess, and you would know better than me, but I bet if you, you know, the majority of Ukrainians probably are opposed to Trump, but the vocal minority gets more attention because of one, sort of the irony of it, and two, you know, this is an administration that feeds on the propaganda war and it's a very useful tool. And these people feel important and Trump makes them feel important. When a Ukrainian American, conservative Ukrainian American says to me, Trump has, you know, how can you say Trump is anti-Ukraine or pro-Putin when he's continued the aid, when he's continued doing this and doing that? I mean, read the fucking papers, man. How many times did people like John McCain go out of their way to make sure 
that Trump continued sending Ukraine aid. He tried to stop it. He tried to take back sanctions against Russia. Well, even um, he, going back to 2016, when he tried to put that, yeah, take the support of Ukraine out of the RNC platform. Yeah. While Manafort was dealing with this Russian intelligence agent. And the crazy who thing knows, is, you know, who even knows what's really up with that? And the only reason, uh, the only reason Ukraine has continued getting the aid throughout Trump's first few years in office when he controlled the House and the Senate was because of, quite frankly, the war hawks that have been there for a long time and want to keep our satellite of power in Eastern Europe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, pressure from, you know, Congress, yeah. pressure from Republicans in Congress. Shall we go, shall we move on to sports? The, everyone's calling it a historic week. I can't argue against it being a historic week. I don't know if it's the most historic week, but it's an historic week, I think. Well, certainly. I, you know, you had the NBA. Um, it all began with the M- Milwaukee Bucks refusing to come out into the court while the Orlando Magic were out there warming up. So clearly there wasn't a discussion between the Bucks and the Magic. Maybe there was, but it didn't lead to anything or whatever. But It seemed Bucks, like the Bucks decided to strike. They were they like, just, we're going to strike. Just, yeah. Yeah, and then and, so you had league officials going in there, and you had league officials whispering to the Orlando Magic on live cameras. They had Kenny Smith on the TNT broadcast that night, walking off the set to protest racial injustice. Um, you had then the, the Milwaukee Brewers as a domino effect. Well, actually, before I go to the Milwaukee Brewers, you had the WNBA refusing to play games and making a very powerful statement. Um, you actually the WNBA had probably the largest percentage of stars refusing to play this year so that they could focus on social justice and racial justice issues. Um, you then had the Milwaukee Brewers refusing to play, which led it, to... It was interesting when it jumped to baseball. And they didn't cancel all the games. There were a couple games that were canceled. Well, yeah, starting with the team from Milwaukee, yeah. you know. Um, I think there were already a couple games that had been played before Milwaukee right. played that day, yeah. And then it became sort of more official. The NBA said, we're just going to postpone a bunch of these games for a couple of days. Uh, and Major League Baseball postponed the next day's games to do the same thing. Um, also, the NHL played all their games the same night that all this was happening. The NHL played all their games. And then the following day, um, a couple members of the NHL, the NHL is not a very diverse league, uh, unless you talk about what country people are from. So there's a player for the Minnesota Wild named Matt Dumba. It might be Dumba. I honestly do not recall what the guy's name, how it's pronounced. Um, he is outspoken. I believe that he is the head of like the NHL Players Diversity Union or something like that. I, I think people will forgive me for not knowing the names of everything going on in the NHL. But he, the NHL played all their games the night that other leagues were canceling and then the night that teams like the Milwaukee Bucks were striking. Um, and he went on to Vancouver radio the following day and he was, he, he expressed his disappointment that the NHL had not postponed games. He said something to the effect of, well, the NHL is always last in this and it's, it hurts. It hurts to see that um, the NHL responded to that, to his interview and to outcry from other black players though a very small group in the nhl by by postponing games uh 
for a day or two. I think it might have been one day. It might have been two. So that's what the so the NHL was, as Matt Dumba said, uh, behind the behind the other leagues. But they did eventually catch up. It was both. I guess when I say that it was, you know, when we talk about it being a historic moment in sports, it both it wasn't. It wasn't. I, well, it's never happened in American sports before. So this is it the was, first yeah. time. I think there was one other time where uh, in the late 60s, the Celtics didn't play a exhibition game in the preseason um, no. because of, of protests during a period of racial unrest. But with the exception of that in major American team sports, nothing like this has ever happened before. I think it was in the moment felt incredibly significant because the Bucks did it as a team. It wasn't a league organized yeah, you know, moment of respect, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the important players, yeah, important distinction from Milwaukee, you know, from the state where this, you know, where this guy's murder took place. Um, the video is horrific, and the players responded. There's even, you know, I'm trying to think of his name, a player for the Bucks who was harassed by cops. You can find the video online about a year ago, and you know, they just felt like they couldn't play. They had to do something. This is what they were there to do. I, I think there's been yeah. so much talk this week about how the, on the other, one or one of the conversations this week, and there's been a lot, it's not the only one, is how appropriate it was or how effective it was. And it's like so much energy. And I think particularly from like white people who I think a lot of them want to be allies and they're like trying to make any protest have to be the perfect protest. And I just don't think there's such a thing. Yeah, you know, I think it was ironic. I think it occurred something like three years to the day when Colin Kaepernick took a knee for the first time, you know, and no one could have predicted then that we would be here. The outrage only increased since then. Um, and I think, the, you know, these things are connected and it's it feels incredibly significant. You couldn't predict three years ago from Kaepernick to this and you can't predict this to Kaepernick. There's definitely seems like there's some criticism going back among NBA players and NBA circles about what the right thing to do was and if they should keep playing or, you know, end the season. And I think that's a tough call. I think for that league, you know, for a lot of these players, it's their business, you know, and they are able to do a lot and have a lot of resources by playing this game. And they have a real partnership with the owners of the league. You know, so I think it's a hard thing to walk away from, you yeah, know, long term. But maybe the right move would have been to do that. Or, you know, I just think there's, no, there, you know, there's no way to tell. No one can judge what the effect is going to be in the future and, you know, where things will go next. I also think from a strategy point of view, they have the ability to do it again. That was one of the things that occurred to me when they said they were going to play again. Well, maybe a week from now and that cop doesn't get charged. And they're like, you know what, we're going to do it again. I do think it – I bet it rattled a lot of cages. There's a lot of wealthy guys, a lot of wealthy white guys. I mean, that you know, NBA owners are basically a white billionaire's club with the exception of Michael Jordan. And, you know, if anyone can call up a white governor or a white elected official and say you're costing me money, you cost Disney money, you cost the ownership money, you know, and the players cost themselves money too, but – uh, you know, I don't think they have the same – players don't have the same reach when it comes to those circles that ownership does and that the league does. Yeah. And, 
you know, I think they got a, they got a lot of attention for what they did. It hadn't, something had never happened before. And, you know, I guess I was impressed that in the league immediately sort of jumped to the players' defense or side and said, we understand and we want to listen and we respect what you're doing. It, it, it has yet to become a hostile situation. You certainly also have a lot of white coaches that are jumping in. Definitely. And the NBA is, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, has a unique place in American culture. I mean, you're watching these games and, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter is written on the court. There's a lot of kind of symbolism in, in these games, you know, kind of supporting the, the cause of, of racial justice. And I, you know, I think that's great. There was certainly a lot of talk from players before they made this decision to go play. If now was the time in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of, you know, sort of this kind of unique moment in America in the fight for racial justice, that if this was the time to distract people with playing sports, and I, I think that's a tough decision, you know, I think that's a tough decision. Yeah, um, I mean, one thing I'll just add to what you're saying right now, just sort of an addendum, is I, I forget who it was, but someone on ESPN on the jump they they said something they were just like look a lot of these players you know lebron james can say anything he wants to the media and it's a news story but for the average nba player they're sitting at home and they want to say something about racial justice it's not going to be listened to in the same way as it would be if they're you know every day in the bubble in the playoffs with a, with a dozen microphones in front of them after a game every single day saying this stuff everything they say becomes a news story um so i do think that there is some credibility to um being in the bubble during the play most more importantly being in the midst of the playoffs and saying things about racial justice versus being in the off season for the average player definitely i mean they have the power you know they have the power like there's a lot of you know, money on the line every time these guys stop, you know, step onto the court. You know, I can only imagine the like Disney ESPN sales guys that had to call all the people who had ads that were going to run during those games and, you know, figure out what they were going to do. And, you know, the NBA's commitments and, you know, and the player salaries too. I, I understand that, you know, I understand that it's, you know, it's work. Um, you know, yeah, they're lucky to be, pretty wealthy guys and make a lot of money, but you know, your family still depends on you to earn a living. Like these are young guys, you know, at the beginning of their careers. And, you know, it used to be this kind of before the pandemic, it was this sort of sure thing way to make money. Now yeah. like that could all change. You know, there's no more ticket sales, like ad revenue is going to go down. You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uncertainty. So you I know, can understand the- wanting to like keep this thing going. Like this thing provides, an incredible platform and economic economic for economic opportunity for these guys. I think this really, to me, and I'm a pretty big NBA fan and follower of, you know, the stories behind the stories. I feel like this was really led by younger players. Like, I don't think the older players, you know, they're very aware and they're very active and, you know, I love LeBron and I respect the hell out of him, and he's a joy to watch. I think this was younger guys. I think this were younger people who, you know, younger people always sort of have less to lose and they're more outspoken and they're not entrenched and they're not thinking about legacy. They're just like, this is fucked up and I don't want to go play this fucking game tonight. It, you know, it it certainly feels very meaningful and the ripple effects 
feel very meaningful. Like it, you know, again, like when I heard the bait, when the Brewers were canceling their game, you know, and baseball is, I don't think really known for its, you know, cutting edge stands on social justice and, and, you know, maybe even political correctness. It was like, wow, you know, the Milwaukee baseball players feel this way. And it filtered out, you know, across baseball. I was watching that Mets Marlins game last night and it was like, what's going on? You know, this was so strange. You yeah. know, and it was unclear. I still don't exactly know if the league knew what was Major League Baseball knew what was going to happen when it happened. You know, yeah. And I guess it makes it all easier too. There's no fans in the stadium, so if there's a time to do this, it's now. Um, and then you know, all these NFL teams cancel practice, and they're all having meetings. And I saw the Tennessee Titans made a joint statement today, and as you said, it filtered into hockey. We were looking at that video earlier of those old Miss players leaving practice today and, you know, walking to that Confederate statue and saying, you know, no justice, no peace. I was going to mention the Ole Miss players. That is a – I mean, even the, the phrase Ole Miss is, yeah. steep, is steeped in racist history. <laughs> um, and I'm glad you mentioned how young a lot of the NBA players were that were a part of this because, I mean, even all of the NBA players. I mean, we're not talking about 50-year-old people here. Even LeBron James, what, 35, 36 years yeah. old. Like, we're talking about – and most of the NBA players are children. Giannis from the Bucks, what is he, 24, 25? You know, we're, you know, we're talking about, like, kids, you know, it, you know doing all this stuff. Shouldering and a lot more responsibility than you or I were shouldering at 26 or 27. One, that's 100%. Sure. 100%. And, and – and that's why the old Miss players are, you know, and all the college kids, you know, the, the, the Pac-12, uh, I think it was uh, Pac-12 football players that started the, the uh, quote-unquote players union. It's not an official union, but they're, they started a group um, and writing letters about saying, you know, we're not going to come back to play unless you do something about racial injustice, unless you do something about um, uh, labor rights and all this other stuff. But um, – but Ole Miss, man, you know, Ole Miss, we're talking about a school. We're talk, First of all, we're talking about 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds. Um, saying no justice, no peace in Mississippi. Um, and, and we're also talking about a, a, a group, you know, we're talking about a college that well, – they're, uh, they're really part – they're like a bastion of the establishment, like playing football yeah. at Ole Miss in a, you know, in a yeah. former Confederate state. Yeah. in a very conservative state, in a state where football players, you know, are celebrated but expected to shut their mouths and play. And a school and, that only integrated its football program because they couldn't win football games without black players. And apparently from the stories you read, you know, are being, were supported by the coaching staff in the, you know, in, in, in taking this action which, you know, I'm a little cynical about, but it also, I think it shows that these players are, rec you know, they have the agency to recognize, look, we can do this and they have no power to stop us. And I think it's just come a long way when you think back to like John Carlos at Tommy and Tommy Smith at the 1968 Olympics when they raised the black fists and they were immediately stripped of their medals and sent home from the Olympic team. And players who, you know, one whiff of any kind of, labor organizing or just even making noise in free agency or criticizing the coaches or anything like that, you know, were just disposed of in the leagues that they played with. Or, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s and early aughts, I guess, you had 
yeah. Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who during, I believe, what was it, the first Gulf War? I know it was the invasion of Iraq. I should know this. You know, he, you know, didn't really want to come out for the anthem and the NBA kind of blackballed him. And it's come a long way from that to this yeah. now. Yeah. So players have been doing this, you know, sporadically and on their own for a while, but now there's like this sense of collective action. And I do, and I'm very curious, I do feel like the real interesting test is going to be, not test, that's the wrong way to put it, but interesting to see what happens with the NFL. Because unlike all these other sports, you can't postpone an NFL game. Like, it's an event. You know, it's a day of the week kind of thing. And, man, if an NFL team refused to play a game, like, holy shit. Like, the country might come to a standstill. You know, this is, you know, those things just are like clockwork. Like, they are expected to happen there is you know an average nfl game has more viewers than the nba finals sort of all of this you know recently kind of started with the nfl it started with kaepernick and you know in the last couple weeks or even earlier i saw where goodell kind of apologized to kaepernick i don't know if he used his name maybe he did but he said no he, he said we should have listened to colin kaepernick sooner you know and again i'm not trying to pat the nfl on the back but they're such a regressive conservative organization well, no, no, I mean, well, fuck them. I mean, pat pat the players on the back for slowly, you know, getting the NFL to this point. Right, and they've and they and it hasn't been that long. It's been, oh God, I wish I, I'm killing myself. I don't know if it's three or four years, but you know, a lot has happened in three or four years. And I remember all the people, maybe even me included, I don't know, I, you know, being like critical of it wasn't happening soon enough, and the players should do more, this or that. But now it's at this point where you know, I think the league recognizes like we have to have some respect for this and figure out how to work this into what we do because, you know, these players have woken up to their, the power that they have in these situations. Um, the per, you know, one of the people I work with today was laughing because they're just like, Jerry Jones has said, whoever kneels, you know, he'll cut them immediately. And I think now more than ever, you're probably going to see players kneel if they even televise the national anthem anymore this season. And I wonder what Jerry Jones is going to do. You know, some of these owners have taken a strong stand against any kind of non-sanctioned player yeah. activism, but I just don't think you can control it anymore. And they want these games to go off, you know? So the players, this is, um, they recognize this is when they have the power. Yeah. And I just want to give one more shout out before we move on to our last, our last brief topic. Just want to give one more shout out to the, the players at Ole Miss, you know, especially players, especially kids like that who are at colleges who are not getting paid, who are already getting a raw deal, and who are already in some of the most traditionally racist states in, in you know, Ole Miss only recently took down the Confederate battle flag, you know, from their games or said that they would. Um, just incredibly brave of these teenagers and people in their early 20s to do this stuff, um, most of them without any hope of ever playing professional sports. Um, just really, um, and, and yelling no justice, no peace in the middle of Mississippi. Incredible, uh, just incredible. Very, oh. yeah. So oh, um, I, I was gonna say, it's always important to remember that young people change the world. You know, by the time you get to 30 years old, you probably aren't changing it. Yeah, you know, for I, better or I, for worse, young people, man. I, I hear you, I hear you. I, just think, I think, you know, for all, all the stuff we know about Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King and all these other folks, you know, uh, even uh, uh, Fred Hampton, you know, Fred Hampton was killed at 21, you know, 
it's it's fucking crazy how young some of the greatest uh, activists in our history are. Um, I to end the podcast, I want to end on an even more depressing note. Um, the far right, the conservatives, everyone just kind of we can ignore the RNC a little bit, but I'm I'm a little bit fascinated by all the love for the 17 year old who shot a couple people. Um, at the protests in uh, Wisconsin. Um, that was an appalling, who had that appalling tweet? Oh, I mean, an appalling person, but still. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean I, you know, there's a million of them. Ann I mean, Coulter? Was she the Didn't one she said, have a, my president or something like that? Someone said, I want him to be my bodyguard, and Ann oh. Coulter responded, I, would, I want him to be my president. Yeah, wow, that was, that's... Everyone on the right. It also, there's a little bit of group think. There's a little bit of just like whatever. The dude's conservative. So everyone on the conservative side has to do their thing. Your average conservative is just avoiding it. Your sort of quote unquote old man establishment conservative is just sort of ignoring it. But, you know, I, I got to tell you, the one thing that's really stuck in my head is that if uh, Donald Trump gets a chance, I think he's going to pardon this kid. That's what's just stuck in my head. I think that would be a little extreme. I mean, I, you know, I, we'll see you know if this what? kid even gets convicted at his trial. So, so I, I've, been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about Donald Trump's pardons because of this kid. And so, you know, so I get it. Donald Trump can pardon, pardon a couple people that makes him look uh, uh, egalitarian, you know, pardon that black grandmother who was selling drugs or whatever the hell. I don't, I don't remember the story, but clearly... You know, Kim Kardashian came and said, please pardon this person. And Trump's like, well, you know, great PR. Um, something to offset all the uh, horrible things he does. Um, but I was thinking, all right, why doesn't Trump pardon three white supremacists who beat the shit out of an Indian guy? You know, which, which happened like a couple years ago um, during Trump's presidency. Um, I think that might be too much. Fine. I get it. He doesn't want to do so. He does like a, like a clear hate crime. So he's not going to pardon this person. But the way that the media and the conservative media and Fox News is churning on this 17-year-old, you know, he went down, cared about his community, cared about property, which apparently matters, um, and compared to lives, black lives, and then was attacked. And, you know, you have photos of someone hitting him with a, you have photos of a, of a, a liberal, a liberal, a leftist, I'm sure Antifa hitting him with a skateboard. Um, the facts just don't matter. The images matter. The narrative matters to these people. Well, to, to a lot of people, but that's, to me, that's what they're going to do. They're just going to, keep talking about how he was a young mixed up kid and he wanted to go down because he cared about his country and he didn't want it to be torn down. It's like what Tucker Carlson said uh, when he said that, you know, of course a 17 year old is running down there to protect his country. Um, I think if it's said enough and it's said loud enough on the right, which so far it has been, I mean, it's been said on the most watched cable news shows in America on Fox News. So why wouldn't Trump pardon this kid? Well, I just think it's unclear that he'll need a pardon. I mean, he could be not be convicted at his trial. He, 
I, I assume this case will go to trial. Uh, it's very early, you know, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm torn as to whether he should be tried as an adult or not. You know, I know they're, they've charged him with first degree murder. Um, Generally, I, 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 you know, right, so, right or left. He's, a, I mean, he's a child to me. I mean, this kid. Yeah. So I, I think they're going to, they've charged him as an adult, which I don't necessarily. I think this kid needs help. He doesn't need to be locked away for the rest of his goddamn life. He just needs to be fixed. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just think there's a long way to go in his case and how that's going to play out in the state courts of Wisconsin before it comes around to Trump stepping in and getting involved, I think. But you're right. The scary thing is, is with Trump as the president, like that's on the table. The right is protecting this kid instead of asking the question, why do we have a society where a 17-year-old can illegally pick up a military assault rifle? That's the thing that hasn't been asked enough for me. I, when I first heard like a 17-year-old kid with, a, with, a, with, a, with an AR-15, like... And also, and, not, and also not protecting his home, not standing in front of his house. He didn't run inside and get his daddy's gun while protesters were burning his lawn. He went on Facebook. He saw a group of people saying, we're going to drive down there. And he drove down there. You know, I mean, he crossed state lines. With driven illegal- by his, you know, driven by his mother. His driven mother by- drove him down there. I, I did not know that. that and- isn't that crazy? It's fucking insane. And state lines sounds a little aggressive because it was 17, 20 miles away. Um, and it's America, so state lines. Yeah. Are. But, but the, I get but, it. I'm not so fixated on that part, but I do get no, it. No, you know. but, but still, you're not, you're not outside your home. You're getting into a car. As you said, your mother's driving you. You're driving. It's like, Mom, I got my AR-15. Will you drive me to join the local militia? 20 like minutes shit you'd see in 20, Afghanistan, you know, 20 fucking minutes away, not even in front of yeah. your own home, like driving 20 minutes away to stand out there at midnight with a, with a weapon protecting a gas station, I guess it was enabled you know, by the police and enabled by the police. There's been a couple of videos that came out showing the en- enabled by Facebook and the police really. Um, and no one's even just, no one's asking the, like, you know, everyone's going back and well, forth. But did he deserve the- to shoot the kids? No, but everyone's asking, did he deserve to shoot the kids? Did he deserve to do this? Was he, was he threatened? Was he this? Was he that? And like, yeah, like you said, no, no one is, not enough people are talking about how the fuck do we live in a culture where this is happening, where a 17-year-old's mom is driving him 20 miles with a, with, with a military weapon to protect a gas station <laughs> yeah. at, uh, well, at midnight. A couple thoughts, just knowing how the criminal justice work, system works, in my experiences, I think the fact that this guy was charged with, with such a serious, it was such a serious charge it, immediately Yeah. that, you know, prosecutors usually don't back down from that. So I think the fact that the prosecutors charged him so quickly and so severely um, speaks to the fact that they feel comfortable they can get this conviction because that's what prosecutors do. Like I said, I know it's a politically charged case, so we'll see. And about all this, I'm not, I'm just laying it out there. It could be different a week from now for sure, especially with Trump as the president, of course. But the other thing is 
So what was going on this week at the RNC? That couple from St. Louis that stood outside of their homes with their pistol and their AR-15 pointing them at protesters walking down their block were speaking at the RNC. Like, I mean, the Republican Party is totally normalizing this crazy ass behavior. And it's, you know, and it's everywhere. The other thing that happened this week is the Idaho state legislature was kind of taken over by guys armed with assault rifles, long guns, excuse me, gun aficionados out there. I'll say assault rifles, fuck you. We all know what we're talking about. And they basically kind of stormed their way in to protest the social distancing mandates in the, in the Idaho state legislature. They were all armed to the teeth. The cops either were afraid to stop them or in cahoots with them and let them come in or were ordered not to stop them from coming in. Like they were there, you know, and they shouted down the Idaho state legislature. So this trend of armed, predominantly white Americans going into public spaces, whether they're, you know, state house buildings or protesting in the streets is only gaining momentum and it is terrifying and no one seems to be able to take it on. Now, clearly Trump and the Republicans have no interest in doing it, but this trend started before Trump. And now of course it's on steroids. It is terrifying. It is dangerous. I saw an interesting statistic this, the other day or that, in the last three months that black Americans are, there's a surge in black American gun ownership in the last three months or purchasing. I think a a modern historic surge. And, you know, that only seems very, you know, like rational self-defense to me. And that's unfortunate too. But I mean, you know, we are, you know, the way our kind of broken system works when it comes to, regulating firearms in this country is enabling the situation. Um, The federal government has, you know, has lost all control. These state governments have capitulated to these people for political gain. So you have, um, you know, some states like New York where it's very difficult. And then you have other states where you can carry an AR-15 in the street. You know, I love that they won't let you have, let you have a concealed weapon. You know, you can carry it out in the open. Um, and it is, you know, all under this second amendment guys and this idea that it is part of your right to protest, to carry a gun, which is a ludicrous argument, you know, which is a whole other discussion, but that's a ludicrous argument. Uh, it is not your free speech right to walk around with a firearm. I've been, you know, considering the school shootings that we've had and, you know, the school shootings and the, I don't know what the mass shootings that we've had. I'm surprised that we haven't had one of these things break out into like a full-on firefight with hundreds of casualties, maybe more. I mean, you know, we've had mass shootings now with, you know, hundreds of casualties with just one shooter. But, you know, the fuse is lit and it's only a matter of time and it's pretty terrifying. I got to do it. And that is Friends You Wish You Had. That's a pretty shitty way to end the episode emotionally. But it's a pretty great cliffhanger for our next episode. Join us next week when we discuss, apparently, how to solve 
the inevitable civil war. <laughs> well, as long as we're not talking about Trump's poll numbers or Q, we will have made some progress as a production. Indeed. Thanks for joining us. Say hi, Jeff. Say goodbye, Jeff. <laughs> Say hi and goodbye, Roman. Uh, I'm discombobulated from everything you just said. I'm just thrown off. By the way, off the record, we should change the name of the podcast to The Paratrooper and the Ukrainian. The Paratrooper and the Ukrainian. Save the world. I, think I just feel like more people would just click on that. 